Monica Michelle with Explicitly Sick for the Invisible Not Broken Network. Um, this is one of our most important episodes. There is no way if you're not living in a cave that you do not know what's going on in the world right now. And I have a very special guest who is very kind. I have been stalking her on Twitter for a very long time. Please put this episode on pause. Go follow her. Um, she will give you her handle in just a minute. I just want to say our tagline, I don't think it's ever been more important. And when I say be kind... Be kind in the way that you can be kind. Be gentle in the way that works for you. And when I say be a badass, we're specifically talking about that today. We are talking about wherever you are in your mental health journey, your physical health journey. We are talking about how you can still be a badass. All right. Over to you, my friend. Hi, my name is Tina Obani Paul. Among other things, I'm the founder, the new founder of an organization called Everywhere Accessible, because I believe that since we're 20% of the world, invisibly disabled or visibly disabled people, we should be able to access the whole world just like anybody else. You know, they would never let the world be inaccessible to like people with hazel eyes. So why are we so different? Um, but not just accessible in terms of being able to get into places, but having access to opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So I started that on the International Day of Disability in 2019. Um, on Twitter, it's at Tinu, and I'm also a disability activist and advocate. And oh, I go- didn't mention, sorry? Oh, I was just going to say, if you go to our show notes at the very top, I'm going to have everything right there. So I will have how to follow Tinu. I will have um, the different hashtags that she has created. And I will have a link directly to her website and to her funding site. Okay. Well, thank you. That's neat. I didn't know you're going to have all that stuff in such a convenient location. So I don't have to like spell everything three times. You do um, not. You can absolutely spell out your name, though, so people know exactly how to get to you right now if they're, they're in their cars and not able to specifically go directly to our show notes at the second. Okay, so it's usually easiest to find me. My whole name is Tino Abayami Paul, but it's usually uh, easiest to find me if you write in Tino Writes to everything. That will take you to me everywhere. Um, my first name's Tino, capital T is in Tom, I, and is Nancy U. My last name's Abayami Paul. You're never going to say it right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> But that's how to find me. I'm not a Tinu. I'm the Tinu. I will not be hard to find. That is that is a very helpful thing. Um, <laughs> and you are someone who has dealt with disability, with um, chronic pain, uh, with cancer. So you yep. are uniquely at a very wonderful intersection to tell us about how to appropriately express our rage and tar- uh, channel our rage in a, a good direction that is useful in moving things forward. Yes, definitely. It's been on my mind a lot because when these kinds of things happen, like currently we're going through this 2020 uprising, you know, and as a result of several events that happened, starting with Breonna um, Taylor's death on March 13th, ending up with um, George Floyd's murder. Um, and I should say Breonna Taylor also, her death was as well was a murder. Um and which sparked a series of uprisings across the country and pretty soon across the world as far as Hong Kong and even as far as Denmark. So um, not that Denmark is further than Hong Kong, but you know what I mean. Um, So what has been taking place is what usually takes place when these kind of things happen on a smaller scale. My 
the section of my white friends and acquaintances and colleagues that come into consciousness about the problems that black people are facing will come to me and say, first, how sorry they are, which is great. See how I'm doing, which is also great. And then they ask me the problematic question is what should I be doing now? And so the intent of the question is great because it's telling me this person really cares. It's not just lip service. They want to take an action, which is fabulous. So I train myself to be ready to give tips on, okay, you could do this thing. You could do that thing. Here's what we need from white people. And then because that changes and because the list grows longer and longer now that more and more people are getting higher and higher consciousnesses of what's been going on with racism, especially in the last 30 years, the list changes and the homework is different. And I have to keep up with all of those things for these, you know, occurrences that are happening periodically. And then finally, this time I said, this is enough. Don't come with me to me to ask me what you should do because it's additional emotional labor that I have to go through. I have to hold, kind of hold your hand about what you're feeling while I'm feeling the fact that I've been feeling this for the last 10, 15, 20, like my whole life and been screaming about it. And, oh, wow. Now you're here paying attention. Welcome to the party. Here's some tissues, you know. So now I also have to do that, too. Not that it's that big of an annoyance or something because you want to love and comfort your friends and give them, you know, the right way to start. But being Black in America is to be in this constant state of too muchness that you have to manage all the time. And so when we get to the point of outrage at the protests that everybody seems to be feeling what you're feeling as a white person when you're just coming to consciousness of what's going on is what we're usually is the level that you're we're usually at all the time emotionally so imagine you're at that state and then all of a sudden hundreds or dozens of requests are coming into you to explain your state to them and then you know give them tools to help you so the, the problem is of the emotional labor that it creates and the burden that it creates for us to have to walk you through this. So I want to kind of come up with a system to get um, the white people, whether I know them or not, to be able to sincerely not only express the fact that um, they feel our pain and that you embrace um, us getting justice, but so that we can move forward in a um, in kind of a more connected manner and not have this issue of the emotional burden come between us. Um, because we keep feeling it in this country, and it, this is the reason why it's a big deal. The country, the government, the institutions treat us like we're in service to the state when it's supposed to be in service to us. We pay taxes like everybody else. So when our friends come to us to build on that unexpected service as well, it just feels like, okay, so now, you know, here's another thing I'm enslaved to. And it's a strong word for me to use the word enslaved, but that is what it feels like. 
So to take this back over to a positive note, I have noticed that a lot of my friends, probably because I can be a real asshole, <laughs> know, have, have figured out how to approach me with these things. For example, for this show um, that I'm honored to participate in, uh, you came to me and said, here's what I have. What can we do with it? You came to me with an idea that was already completely formed. You told me what you wanted to happen and you gave me some suggestions and said, what can we do together with this to help with this issue? It didn't require me to do any thinking. It didn't require me to come up with things. It didn't require me to make any additional decisions. So it was easy for me to say, yes, let's do this and let's work on it together. That made me feel like you felt I was equal to you. Where when people come to you and say, what should I do? That makes me feel like I'm in the servile position, which mm. I'm tired of feeling like that. And I, it took me, I don't know why it took me so long in my mind to find a way to say that. That's part of the problem is that we black people spend a lot of time trying to word things so we don't hurt white people's feelings. <laughs> but that's just lying in a long way and it's taking us backwards instead of forwards. If we had been more honest, I think once we start to have interpersonal relationships with white people, I think we would have got to the point of where we are right now sooner. And so not to say, not to put, play the blame game and say, you know, we should have done this and we shouldn't have done that because this is just kind of just notes for the future. But, um, we black people, we need to be more honest with our white friends and stop trying to save our friendships with these lies of comfort that we give white people. And white people, when you approach us in these times, bring us, think, think this question to yourself. What is my privilege in relation to the typical black person that I know? Because I mean, if you're in technology, that's a different dynamic than if both of you are, say, waitresses. That's a different dynamic if both of you are teachers. It's a different dynamic if both of you are lawyers. So in, you know, in my capacity and in my privilege in the positions that I have, not just in work, but just in the world in general, what is my privilege and how can I convert part of it or leverage part of it to bring opportunity to Black people? And you may be thinking, okay, well, my thing is so small and my opportunity isn't big enough and what I have to offer is so little or I don't have any money. It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be something that's super valuable. It can be time. It can be the ability to talk to someone when they need to vent. It can be whatever you have that you know that you have because that you know that you may have had because of privilege or you know that you have that they don't have for whatever reason that they don't have. How can I share this part of my privilege and leverage it so that other people can have more, more um, access to opportunities? Because of course, all the opportunity out there is equal. What people don't see is that we don't have access to it. Those opportunities sometimes might as well be behind a brick wall. Mm. So, um, 
I think that covered all of the points in my head. I feel like I'm forgetting one of the points, but I also did like a billion threads on this in Twitter. <laughs> so my You have. Your Twitter has been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad. I'm really glad. I remember one of the things I tweeted was um, that thing that you're doing that your one black friend said it was okay for you to do, even though all the black people online or hundreds of black people have said it's not cool. Your friend is lying to you to save your friendship. Stop putting them in that position and do your own research. Ooh, that one. <laughs> you know, because you're sitting there, you're singing a song, it has an N word in it, and you're sitting there going, do I get to say it? It's just a word. Do I get to say it? And then, you know, it depends on, you know, some of us are like, oh, it's just the song. If you're doing it with the soft A, we really don't mind. Just don't, you know, hit it really hard. Don't make a big deal out of it. And then some of us are like, no, never, ever, under any circumstances, I don't even use that word myself. Me personally, I don't say the word anymore. I always say the N word um, because everybody knows what word I'm talking about. And it's not just a curse word. And I don't feel like it should be treated like one. If it's not just a word for you, that, that really says a lot right there. If you are, um, you cannot understand what that word implies or means if, if this does not apply, if you have not heard it spoken to you directly. And right. I, I'm stumbling over words. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to say like, like basically, if it just seems like it's just a yeah. word to you, you're not getting it. Yeah, and if, if there's two words that will help people who listen to this under, this con, this um, podcast understand. We've taken back the word crip. But if somebody saw you and called you a cripple, you'd be pissed off, right? You know, if they called you, you know, um, if you're a woman and somebody called you a bitch and you don't know them like that, you would be pissed off, right? You know, there are words that you can call people where there's no equivalent. Like you can't really call a man a bitch because the insult is that he's a certain type of woman. That's, you know, so it's just backfiring on you. You know what I mean? Um, there's the, the K word for Jewish people, which I've never said that word in my life. I don't even like to think it. But there, there's nothing that you, a Jewish person can call anybody else in the world that is equivalent to that word for them. So if that is true for the word, you shouldn't say it, regardless of the cultural context. Words have weight, um, and they that do. word has, has centuries behind it of weight. Right. That um, word, it mean, it's telling us that we're subhuman. And mm. it's just an insult in every context. And it's like, we don't have a lot of blanket requests of white people. That is one of the few that all of us have, whether we're conservative or liberals, whether we're Africans or African-Americans, whether we're Dutch or we're Spanish, don't use that word with us as white people ever, period. Don't care who you're married to. You know, don't care if you have black kids, Madonna, you can't do it. You had talked about um, opportunity and some opportunities being behind a wall. And um, mm -hmm. Trevor Noah wrote an incredible book called um, 
and born a crime. And there was one section that hit me in the gut. And that was when he was talking about how someone sold him a piece of equipment that he was able to build an entire business off of. And he said something to the effect of, um, when you're talking about like, when you teach a man to fish, he eats for, you know, forever. Yeah. If you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, but it's really a good step to give him at least a fishing rod. Right. Yeah. I was hoping you, you could expand on that one. No, that's, <laughs> just, that's exactly what it is. Like, yeah. you can teach a man to fish, but without a fishing rod, is he supposed to catch a fish with his hands? You know? And if he, even if he can, do you know how long that skill takes in relation to using a fishing rod? That's what, that's exactly how to describe, you know, the opportunities. He was on the other night. Did you see his daily show, two-part broadcast that he posted to the web? Like, I didn't see it on TV but he had like a two-part monologue that was incredible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a lot of things to say about Trevor Noah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, all, all good. Uh, <laughs> uh, Absolutely. A, and he's yeah. not hard on the eyes either. Mm. <laughs> we I like can definitely go there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was not going to bring that one to this table, but I, I'm well, here for it. I'm trash though. <laughs> there's a lot of pretty there as well. Um, I <laughs> will not deny that one. Um, yep. There we go. <laughs> but um, he also has a way of, um, one of the things that struck me about his book is that he's lived mm-hmm. at the intersection of so many things. And he's yeah. Lived, yeah, just like right on the edges of so many different things. And he's an amazing mm-hmm. bridge builder because of it. He understands almost yeah. like everyone's coming from in a place that he almost gets lonely, but mm-hmm. he's able to see so many different things that he can explain something to people in a way that like a whole bunch of different people can digest. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we're missing as Americans just in general. We, we may not be in the position to travel the world, but I think more Americans should travel to different states and just outside their communities, even in their own state. Just walk down the street in a community where you don't live. Go to where the Italians live in your community. Go to where, you know, Vietnamese people live. Go to the, Chi- the, the part of town where all the China- people from China live. Go to the black neighborhood and just walk around and talk to people. You know, it's not dangerous. It's not, you know, bad. So... It's, um, sorry, I just need one second. Scary or foreign enough that you have to feel like you're not allowed to go there is the point that I'm trying to make. And that exposing yourself to other cultures, whether you do it locally or internationally because you have the privilege to be able to travel the world, it helps you see other points of view in a way that you can't sit in your house or just live in, in your community or just being around other people like yourself. Yeah. And if you are like, you know, bed bound, um, the library is an incredible resource. Uh, oh, yeah. I think that, yeah. Reading other authors that you are not familiar with that are from mm-hmm. different cultures or different socioeconomic classes. Like these are really incredible yeah. ways to build empathy. Right. There's groups that you can join online for example, there's a site that will let you learn languages from other people. There's sites that will let you um, have be an anonymous pen, a, a pen pal will match you an anonymous, 
anonymously with another person. You can be pen pals. So there's bed bound options, well, house bound and bed bound options. I've been both of those things. I'm currently, I would say, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I'd be 70% housebound. And of course, because of the pandemic right now, I'm 100% housebound. And so about, how- oh no, I was just going to say, and it, it, that whether or not I, that's bed bound as well varies. You were going to say? I was just going to ask, you know, you are um, watching everything that's going on. You're watching the riots. You're watching the protests. You're watching all of this from your home, from bed, as a lot of us cannot go out and you cannot go out. What are you doing that we can emulate that, that you're able to be a part of things? Well, the first thing I do when I know there's going to be um, unrest is I contact my local community organizations. I find out who is doing the work in the area for all of the different things that are happening. Like there's a planned protest. You can usually find where the protest is in Craigslist or in local publications or online, wherever you find it, and then contact them and find out, do you need supplies? Do you need a person to be on the phone ready to talk to the press about things? Did you guys get burner phones, you know, so that you don't um, have to reveal your information in case a police officer wants your phone? And if so, do you need somebody to be the person who can get you access to your real phone if something happens? If you get arrested, you know, do you have somebody to notify? Do you have, you know, somebody to talk to the lawyers if you, you know, until you can talk to the lawyers, things like that? Do you need water? Do you need milk? Um, there's, you can coordinate things with them on the ground. You can also tell them, hey, if we use this hashtag, I can help you organize the uploads that you're doing. You can um, monitor Twitter for problems that are happening in a pick a local area and monitor that area for problems that are happening and then relay that information into whatever the hashtag is. Sometimes there's not a hashtag for a local area, but they'll find it because they'll search by the city information. Um, And those kind of things are very helpful to people on the ground. You can do a lot of this activism from, from home. People call it slacktivism because they don't understand that 30 years ago, starting a petition, for example, was a very difficult process and then actually getting people to sign was a nightmare and so now we have a different type of power so people will like selectivism so it can kind of take your power away from you and say oh don't do that it doesn't matter it matters all of it matters getting the petition signs and circulate matters being an information dissemination expert matters just a person who's who just spreads information that is critical to all movements so we as disabled people have an actual advantage in that we can be useful in organizing and spreading and monitoring information. It's one of the weaker parts of American activism, period, not to speak of, you know, um, African-American activism, is that we just don't, we just not connected to the information that we should be and the, the connections that we do have are not, organized. So if you look at something like what Imani did, which was disabled people for black lives, is she's seeing resources where, okay, well, here's things that you can do for home. Let's put it in this hashtag. 
here's resources for people in the march. Let's put it as this hashtag. So they're all organized in one place. And it's all things that are accessible to disabled people. So you don't have to pick through all of the different ideas for, hey, you can't go to the march. Yeah, I can't go to the protest, but I'm invisibly disabled. I have fatigue and chronic pain. So nothing on this list applies to me. You can be the person who says, I'm going to go through all of that stuff. And then I'm going to put all of that stuff over here. You know, there's going to be problems during the uprisings, too, where you will see incidents of um, brutality against bystanders. Or like we have noticed recently, because of mostly people who could not go to the protest, many of whom were disabled, that the people starting the riots were not African-American people. And now the, the press is starting to pay attention to that, but it wasn't until people started collecting that information into threads and saying, listen, this wasn't just one isolated incident. It wasn't just that one reporter on CNN who got taken in by the cops. It was these guys and this local news and this place. Seeing all of it in one thread, excuse me, changes people's minds. Just like seeing nine minutes of somebody dying changes people's minds and makes them understand that not only is this happening every day, if the guy's not getting his foot off the neck in time, he, the people are also dying. So it's two things. It's not even just one. It's not even just one problem because, you know, people used to tell us this was a typical response. Oh, well, there's only a 0.03% chance that you're going to die from a police encounter. But that's not the point. The point is, the hundreds of George Floyd incidents that are happening to us where no one dies and no one had a camera and no one else was there. It's the hundreds and thousands of Amy Cooper incidents out there that are happening to us at work. When we take our children out, when you go around in Texas, they open carry and they have no problem, you know, pretending like they're pointing their gun at your child, you know, People get shot in traffic incidents. It's um, a lot. We're going through a lot of different, uh, I call it death by a thousand paper cups once I heard that expression because individually, when we tell you about them, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. It's like, oh, that's too bad. Racism again. Dang. Yeah. My cat got stuck in a tree and it's just like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> we get into these conversations where we think we're swapping stories about problems. But it's like we have the regular problems that you do, and then we have an extra layer. That's what people don't really seem to understand is that extra layer of invisible, you know, weight that we have. And you would think that some other people would understand. You, like you would think women would understand that. You would think you would go to your white women friends and they would go, you know all the extra burdens that you have because you're not a man. I have all these extra burdens because I'm a black person. You know, and I try to describe them to you and you might think that you get it, but you just really don't get it, even though I'm telling you about it. But something, it's just something about, you know, having that image forced to everybody at the same time that I think really woke up most of the country that this is a serious problem and it's happening constantly. And we've been, this is why we're talking about it and crying about it and marching about it all the time is that that's how casually it's done too. They say they're, they feared for their lives. They usually didn't. 
they it's usually the conspiracy the brotherhood of the police department covering it up you know which is another um issue what what are we going to do about police departments that's something else that we really need um the participation of the white community to help us solve well to to make it to make my point i'm going to go into a little bit of history the first police departments that well not the first police departments the first bodies that were convened to police were for runaway slaves they were to round up runaway slaves and 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 protect their property from Native Americans who were all thought to be, you know, people who wanted to steal their stuff, which we stole their land. Well, not we, but America stole their land. So if it's me, I'm thinking, you mean get their stuff back, <laughs> not steal. But um, so they, they started with these two perceptions. That's how it all began. Those um, slave patrols became official bodies and those official bodies became police departments. They were there to control the black population. That was their job. And at that time, the black population was property. We are the capital that American capitalism is founded on. We were the original capital and the state has never updated that idea in its structure as it has been built. So the police department and all these structures in America are still treating us like we are property and that we lack the language to really express that. And so we've really, I have an, uh, my degrees in African-American studies, which is why I'm so able. I spent four years digging through this stuff and learning the history and understanding the culture and learning world history because they don't teach us world history. Mostly they just teach us American history and seeing all of this in context. And once I get all got all of that, then I can speak on those issues and we keep it out of schools. Most people don't know that that's how police departments were founded or why they exist. They think that they're there to protect and serve people. They're there to protect and serve property and the people who own property. That's what they're there for. And the more property that you own, the more the police department that you own, period, no matter what part of the country that you're from. So with that idea in mind, and with the idea that we're thought to be still treated by the state, especially the police department, as property that needs to be controlled, you add in, um, you add in the fact that nobody has this perception, but you have the people who are being patrolled because we need to be controlled according to them. They're patrolling our area. If I watched you for twenty-one for twenty-four hours. I will catch you making a mistake, no matter who you are. If I'm always there every time, all day long, I'm going to catch you making a mistake. So if they were patrolling the white areas like they patrol our areas, they would find the same things. They just don't patrol you like they patrol us, which is one of the reasons why we try to move out of black areas. It's not to get away from our own kind, it's to get away from the patrolling. So we have this whole situation, and then you add in the fact that there's an overlap, which has been known if you go to hatewatch.org, they have all this information. PBS did a story about it in 2016, about how for 10 years, the government has had sufficient evidence to show 
that most of the police departments have a huge overlap in their population between um, white nationalist organizations and their staff, their patrolling staff. So not just the administration, not just the management, the people who are walking the beats, the detectives. So imagine that you're surrounded by people from another culture in your job. You're going to adopt, adopt ideas from that culture. Those ideas from that culture are going to make it into that organization, especially if it's already set up to ex be accepting to those, those ideas. So this idea of a good cop, you know, let's say you're in hell and you're an angel. How do you be a good angel in a place that's designed to be hell? Either you can be an angel or you can serve hell. You can't do both things and you can't be an angel serving in hell. So you have these good cops who want to do the right thing, but they're in this environment where it's either the brotherhood of silence or it's you know, um, running into administrative problems in trying to report things or somebody being able to buy their way out of problems with wealth. So you have this whole situation happening and we don't understand why the police, because we don't think about these things and we're not taught these things, we don't think about why our community is so rejecting of the police. And then you think about the fact that most murders are unsolved. When you call the police, your, your property is usually already gone. 60% of those cases are never solved. There's so many things that the police department does that we could do ourselves or create core community organizations that do them without this violent foundation. It only takes 40 weeks to become a police officer at the most the longest training program that I've ever seen is 40 weeks. It's usually around six months. So with that little bit of training and this huge weight of the history of the department and then all of the other factors, it's no wonder we're having clashes with the police department. They're designed to treat us a certain way, whether they want to or not, that's what they're designed to do. And then about 15, 20 years ago, all this military equipment that they're making that serves us because our military is way too big. It's like nine times the size of the next economy. If they have it, we'd still have all of this money freed up and still be four and a half times the size of the next people. When that military equipment, which where's it going to go? You're going to sell it to like our enemies. It has to go somewhere. That's being sold to the police department. So what are they going to do with that stuff? You saw them in the right ear. You know, you saw them in all of the stuff head to toe when our nurses and our doctors can't even get face masks. Every officer had a face mask, but we can't give them to doctors and nurses, you know? And you see where these resources are going. So we have a resource problem. We have a structure problem. We have a culture problem with the police department. We need to defund them. They're being... Um, funded with our tax dollars. And we have the right as citizens to say, we do not want to have police departments anymore. We want to defund them and we want to create other organizations. Now, the problem is, okay, a lot of people are going to lose jobs behind that. But if they are white nationalists infiltrating our police departments, and now those same white nationalists are turning against the other white people who are defending us, 
what reason is there left to still have those people in those jobs? If a person's a good police officer, they'll probably get hired by the new organization. Or, you know, because they'll be able to prove, I have no history of connection with any white nationalist organizations, especially once they put white nationalist organizations back on the domestic terror list. That's why Steve Bannon was on the National Security Council in 2017. That was the one thing he was there for. Take all the white nationalist um, groups that President Obama and I believe President Bush put on watch lists and take them off. Because once they're off um, federal watch lists, they're free to operate however they want to. That's part of why the rise in violence after Trump was so high. And then who's going to police them if the police and the white nationalists have overlap? Who's going to police them? If they have white nationalists in the federal government now, in the executive offices, at the highest levels, who is going to police them? They dismantled the Justice Department initiative that Barack Obama put together, President Barack Obama put together in order to um, get the um, police officers to have oversight. So we have this big, huge mess. At this point in time, if they wanted to, as you probably saw some of the footage of the curfews in Minneapolis, they can at any time march the National Guard down the street and decide that we're all prisoners in our own homes. They currently have that power. Why they haven't used it yet, who knows? But they didn't use it when we needed to shelter in place for the coronavirus, you know? But they were, had no problem using it against, especially innocent bystanders and peaceful protesters. So... We, as we need you as white people to help us figure out what can we do besides police departments and how can we start it and how can we start making that transition right now? Because they test these oppression tactics out on us and then they it widens the rest of the country. That's something that I don't think people really realize when they're watching the news. You know, we had the housing crisis. Black people had the housing crisis two years before it ever got to white neighborhoods, before it ever got to white America. So when we were, we're usually when we're struggling and we're crying and we're dying, it's not just we want to be rescued. We don't want to see this happen to you. Racism hurts everybody. The oppression is just being tested on us. It's just like with it's just like with ableism, you know. They make it so you can't get in the building. They make it so they can try to control your vote. They make it so that you can be treated as not a person. And then they move on from people who are, vis who, from people who are visibly disabled and they move to the invisibly disabled. And, oh, you have, you know, whether you have diabetes or you have a thyroid problem or you have a, a back problem, They're, we have pre-existing conditions now, so Fuck all of you guys. You can't, you know, um, go to the doctor or have insurance for Christ's sake. You know, I went through that. I had the reason I became the reason I had that whole digital marketing career and technology was so that I could. It was the fastest way I could see to use my skills to be able to have cash, to be able to work <laughs> so that I could have cash so that I could work. I was in this endless cycle. My medical bills were higher than my mortgage, and it was awful. It was excruciating, um, you know, having to go through that. But on the other hand, you know, here comes Obamacare. 
you know, right before I thought, right um, before I found out that I had cancer. And at the time I felt like I was dying. I was able to go and go to the doctor and have the entire thing because of my income level covered by the state of Maryland. I never even got a bill. You know, they saved my life. I would have died because I wouldn't have been able to afford to be alive. Do you ever think about that concept for disabled people that we can't afford to be alive? It's ridiculous, you know? I just wanted to amplify um, a person that we both really, really adore. Um, as you're talking about the inability to to get what is needed and the paywalls, yeah. um, I wanted to to amplify Tiara. Um, she's oh, I love her. A four wheel workout. We did a two part series on um, with her. Um, but one of the things that struck me so hard is how much I want that woman to become a lawyer. She wants to be a public defender. Yeah. That is the person we need as a fucking public defender. We need Absolutely. her. But to take the bar is thousands of dollars. So there's this huge right. paywall on getting your law degree, getting yes. the bar, and then getting all the... And it's not just taking the bar. You have to have study materials. This is hard. Yeah. And this woman just had a baby. Have have <laughs> the privilege of not having to work while you study. Yes. Her. Yes. There's so and many the, things that go into it. She has a newborn. I mean, this woman, like, I bow. I bow down to her. But, Me too. Right? And but the, doing it with a baby? Like, how is she alive? <laughs> the respect I, I have it. for her is, like, I, I can't even express, like, how much yeah. I'm just... And she's just amazing. But what I, I, I was just trying to underline, and please, by the way, go to her. I'll also link up her funding page as well because she needs to take the bar. And, yeah. um, and the thing is, is we have these paywalls behind getting to someone to be able to be in a position where they can change things. So right. she can change things as a public defender. She could move up. She could become a judge. And what an amazing judge that woman would make. And she, she could would. change lives, right? But she has yeah. to get the money like, to well, do this. Well, that's part of the problem with the way that America is going right now. You know, it's not just that they're stealing all of our money. It's they're buying democracy. American capitalism is based on slavery because we were the original capital. American democracy is based on freedom. How can you have freedom and capitalism at the same time? Like it's just, it's, they're designed to explode when mixed. And now we're mixing them. You know, when people say, oh, well, you know, I don't think you should begrudge people their billions, you know, it's okay to have billionaires. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Who polices billionaires? They can buy the police. They can buy judges. They can buy countries. <laughs> so who polices the who polices the rich? Who is going to police the, of the billionaires? Who how is a person allowed to have enough money to end homelessness and then choose not to do it? If we had the tax system we had in the 70s, it wouldn't be a big deal because the surplus that they have would be used to, they'd be paying about the same rate, um, but a higher amount of um, money to, um, to um, of taxes to fix, you know, the part of society that they are responsible for, for having that kind of money in, you know, they make a bigger impact. They have a bigger footprint. They should be paying more money to clean up their mess. And then you have the, the, the issue that um, I, I feel there's a big insincerity 
from the wealthy people who have stepped forward and said that they believe that the uh, our current administration's pilfering of our tax dollars and all the other things that have have gone on. Um, I, I think there's a real insincerity there because I did the math because I like numbers and I'm a little bit of a numbers nerd. There's 18,600 billionaires in, in America. There's, I think, a little over 600 billionaires. If 10% of them took the surplus money that they got from their tax breaks, they could even things out. Like, let's say they all wrote uh, a check for, you know, the, the surplus and divided it by every adult America, American. The checks themselves would probably end up being one or two cents. But there's 18.6 million of those two cent checks. Then you, like if you send those, if, if, if they were really sincere about it, and they pulled all that money together, along with the billionaires who would have a, bit, a bigger portion to pay, they could send checks to every adult in America that would amount to, I can't remember if it was $10,000 or $100,000. I don't have it in front of me. But they could all just write us a check. They could. And they just don't. So I feel like there's a real insincerity about the whole, oh, yeah, I got too much taxes back. This is terrible. You know? I, I like <laughs> On the one hand, I think it's great that, you know, some of them are coming out but it's just like with the celebrities on this uprising issue you know you we know that you guys have billions of have millions of dollars because as consumers of your celebrity we gave them to you so why wouldn't you circle back and give them back to us in in the form of bail money or you know just go and bail protesters out like jay-z and beyonce did when ferguson happened that's it. Just quietly go and bail the people out of jail who get, you know, arrested in these protests. Give us, you know, get in touch with a reporter, use your celebrity and go on TV and talk about these issues. Who is the one show that always wanted you on and you never wanted to go? Go on that show and talk about the uprising. Talk about the people who are getting hurt. Talk about the local reporters that are getting, you know, blasted in the face with tear gas for doing their jobs. There's supposed to be no closer relationship than there is in institutions between the local cops and the local police. And then all of a sudden, these people who've known each other for like probably decades are shooting their people, shooting people in the face with tear gas. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's like that overlap is... Um, causing an issue. I also want to talk about COVID and the, um, and the, um, what do you call it? I want to talk about COVID and the uprisings in a second when we have time. That's absolutely. something about I do that popped in my mind. Absolutely. And I will, I will absolutely bring back to COVID, but I wanted to talk okay. just for a second about companies and their mm -hmm. activism and who's doing a good job and who's doing a very bad job. And of course, when I say very bad job, I'm thinking Kylie Jenner and Pepsi mm -hmm. and when I'm thinking good job. And I'd love your feedback on this. I saw it this morning on Twitter and Nickelodeon surprised me. Um, what did they do? A, 
um, please look it up and tell me what you think, because mm-hmm. um, like I said, I feel like I don't have really uh, much of a space in this conversation except to listen to you and what you're saying. Okay. But as far as what I was saying, companies do, I was seeing a lot of uh, signaling like, hey, we care. We care. We're doing yeah. something. We're giving a million dollars of our three trillion dollars, you know, th- right. thinking, like, you know, whoopee. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you're expecting to be last of the sheep to exactly. the slaughterhouse. Okay. No, that's not how we're doing this. And then mm-hmm. um, seeing uh, Nickelodeon who did, I believe it was a nine minutes of um, silence and focus on like saying to make parents start talking to their children about inequality, about wow. uh, privilege and it was, um, there's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of pushback. And I thought it was, I felt like it was wow. me personally, just from my perspective, I was shocked. And I was really, um, for me personally, very, very much felt like it was a brave thing to do. I might, it's again, I, like, this is, and it's also yeah, because you have needed. a lot of, you know, you, they don't know how, how, what the pushback is going to be. And how they're going to be held like responsible for that. But on the other hand, they're operating from a pretty se- secure position. What are you going to do? Cancel your cable? You know, I mean, so, everyone keeps talking about like canceling Disney, and it's like they're mad that they have gay people, and they're like, "We're canceling, we're done." Yeah, yeah. yeah they're fine. You know they're how good. Much stuff Disney owns? Are you kidding? Yeah. Like, you can't cancel Disney. <laughs> yeah. All right. I don't know if it was Zach Gelfand. I'm going to get this wrong, but there was someone on uh, Instagram and Twitter who, um, yeah. his response to anyone who was saying all lives matter after he was saying black lives matter, he mm-hmm. was like, yeah, fuck you. Bye. Go. If this is at all, if black lives right. matter is at we all to have to, a question, yeah, bye. Like there's and no. And now it's just like, bam, next person. Yeah, Roughly and so I was just person. curious who you saw that you felt like were, was doing a good job using their privilege for um, what's going on so that we can, like, look at supporting or amplifying that. Yeah, conversationally, I think Ice-T is doing a good job. Ooh, I don't yes. know you like. <laughs> you guys, I, I'm waiting to see, like, what actual things you could do, like, monetarily. But as far as talking back to people, and especially his white fans, because he's now on a very mainstream show, People don't understand that one, he used to be in the army and that two, his lyrics in his early rap career were very hardcore. You know, I remember the song Colors and him talking about, you know, his gang. And then you listen to the song and you realize, is this song about the police or is this song about gangs? You know, you can't really tell. Now, looking back on it, you can't really tell what that song is about. So, you know, are the police a gang? That's what that movie was about that the song came from. So he's been pushing back against those ideas that, you know, people are expecting him to have. Also, Trevor Noah, of course, if you get a chance to see that two-part thing that he did about the contract that people have with society and how they respond when that contract is broken, it's incredible and it's very clear. And if you have people who are on the fence on the issue, that is a very good thing to send them. If you have people who are like, this is great, but the writing, and will not accept that the writing was not started by peaceful press, press, protesters, send them this. Um, I also noticed that um, I like that the music industry is having a blackout day because they will lose money for that. But I think that it would, been, it would have been even better if they spent, if they stayed on 
focused on black artists and then donated all the money from that day. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> they make a money per stream when we stream stuff on Apple music, Spotify, they make money per stream. So Instead of having nothing, why didn't they have something? So mm. I think that's a good effort, but I think that they could do more. So what, if I'm understanding, um, one of the things mm-hmm. that we can suggest for people as we're talking about things that people can do is to create a movement where for one day we focus on Black artists, we focus on mm-hmm. Black writers, we focus on Black music, and that we use all of our dollars instead of re- yeah. using to use our dollars, we use those dollars to pay directly to, um, to Black voices. Yeah, I would even say, you know, there's what, 26... Um, working 25 to 26 working days a month, black people about 13% of the population. Like, why can't we have a day or two a month where that's what we do? Why can't we do that on every 13th and every 26th of the month perpetually? If they will not even out the inequality, let's try to start doing it ourselves. We don't need the institutions to do those things. If we can start to do them and then go back and decide who wants to dismantle the institutions. Once the, and that's the fear that has come from, that's part of the function of the racism at the, on the structural and um, institutional level is that if our groups are kept apart, then we won't work together. But if we're able to work together on these problems, mm. there's a lot of things that we can do together as a block to change what the country is and what direction it moves into, you know. Uh, For the block Starting with little... Pardon me? Oh, no, it's, it's, it seemed like you needed to take a space. So I was just going to jump in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was going to say starting with local things like the funding of the police departments, we have a lot more power on the local level than we have on the national level, and that affects us more. I was thinking of a video that I want to um, retweet when I get back off of here that talked about how they did this in Ferguson. And I think it's an example for all communities to look at this and realize how much power we have on the local level to change the institutions that we have. And then once we have the local level changed, we can use that to change the rest of the country because all of the, the, you know, the politicians go from being on the city council to being in the state legislature, to being representatives and senators, and then they become, you know, in the executive branch or go into, you know, um, head up departments or go into, um, the executive branch where they serve presidents. So if we start with on the local level and not let them get into the door in the first place mm. and we control their point of entry and pay more attention to civics, then these problems won't be coming up because we'll have vetted them from early, early, early on. And yeah, it's going to take 20 years for the, this whole vision to complete, but where will we be in 20 years if we don't start now? That's the question. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I do need a little bit of a pause. So, okay, can I ask a quick question then? Um, Great. As you were, um, as we're talking about things, and you are um, very good at creating hashtags and movements around things, one thing I learned from Imani. (laughs) <laughs> that's good to know. And that's another person I will put um, as we're talking about videos, by the way, everyone, if you head to our show notes, I will be posting all the videos at the very top. So if you don't want to try to go around and find the videos we're discussing, I'm going to do my best to put each of those videos at the very top. So it's just very easy to watch. Um, I was wondering yeah, I'll if, spread them and send them to you, the ones that I have. 
Uh, you don't even need to do that. Um, if you want to, absolutely. I don't want to create more work I'm for you and your. Um, yeah, I'm going to oh. do it already for disabled black talk. Excellent. So yeah, I'm doing that already today. So if it's already done, I just don't want to take you away from your activism. I want to, oh, no. um, you're doing some super important work and I don't want to take up your time on that. Um, but I appreciate that. I was thinking, you know, it, was, it, it really shocked me with the, the blackout, this, um, this movement, because I was thinking if there's one group of people that need to not be quiet, like this is, this is important. Like there's, there's a lot of already silencing and I was, yeah. I was kind of shocked. And I was wondering if there's a possibility to switch this for a, a day where anyone who is not a part of this community sits down, shuts up and retweets and reads and spends this time listening to the voices and really doing some work and looking at their boards. Is your board very pale? Is your social media management really Mm -hmm. pale? Like just really spending a day of doing work and listening to voices. If you're the head of a company, invite your workers in and listen, sit and hush. Is there a way to do a day like that? Yeah, and I think we should not only do it like one day. It should be periodic. And I say the mm-hmm. 13th because Ava's movie, The 13th, about the 13th Amendment and the fact that Ooh. slavery was not completely abolished. It's still legal in prison. Mm-hmm. I point that, I've been pointing that out to people for years. And when she made that documentary, like it was, it was stunning, the clarity with which she expressed the ideas and talked to all of the people and the scholars who deal with this issue, you know, but that's one of the things that will give it the, I, I think that would give it weight is the fact we're 13% of the population, the 13th of the month. It makes it easy to remember every month on the 13th, let's focus on black voices and let's not leave the other um, um, cultural groups out either. They should have their days too. You know, we work often closely with a good portion of the Latino community, the Asian community, the Native American community is in a lot of trouble. They have been for a long time and people are always, always forgetting them. But every battle we're fighting, we're standing on their land. We're standing on their land and we're forgetting about them and it's a problem. If you ever want a true horror wake up the United States, look at the laws on what can happen on, on um, First Nations land and yeah. what happens with police violence also with First Nations people and um, start looking at the missing First Nations girls. Like there's the missing girls. Like the, the, uh, it's, it, I, I spent a day on that. Just I kept seeing the same tweet over and over again. I said, OK, this person is tweeting this every day. It must every day it must be important. And it is, I can't think of a word stronger than heartbreaking, but there needs to be a stronger word than heartbreaking. Nobody's looking, nobody's even looking for that. Yeah. It's the thing that is really striking me. Like we have a similar problem in the black community with Mm -hmm. missing girls and women. And maybe nobody else cares, but we, we, we somewhat have the resources to try to figure it out. They don't have those resources. And I feel like we owe them, even if we are not part of the uh, population that historically oppressed them, this is still their land and we are still on it. It's frightening. And I mean, they could be extinct in another generation 
if something isn't done about this? Because why are they taking girls specifically? They bear children. It's, um, I, I, we're, we're, we're um, a bit close in age. And um, during, I remember in the 90s, there was a huge rash of, of girls being kidnapped. But there was only certain girls who ended up on the news. Only certain girls were being searched for. And um, this show is about, um, about looking at how fucked everything is. I don't know right? a better word it for it. Fucked. It, it is, is so fucked. fucked. Um, and we've, you know, I I know we're, we're going to get some, some questions about this episode and let me just be really fucking clear about why this episode is being done. And because people have, have come to us and been upset because we're a medical show. We are a fucking medical show and this Mm -hmm. is a medical issue because racism is is fucking killing people. So, and racism is systematically killing people medically, politically, um, and (laughs) You know, I can and speak with to the police. medical side of it, for the and we will people. absolutely do that one too. <laughs> I, I yeah. we are going to be talking a lot, um, and I want to to open that as well. Um, Jesus, I, I, the trauma I feel is nothing compared. Like it's it's just so it's so shocking to me of um, realizing that this is a trauma I'm just feeling that everyone else has been feeling for a very long time. It it is it's a shock. It's a culture shock. Um, because I, I don't know what it feels like to not be feeling this because I have, I have a missing due to early, you know, abusive trauma. I've been missing portions of my childhood. So I can't remember literally not feeling this way, but, um, so it's odd for me to try to relate to not feeling those feelings. But the closest that I can come is there was a before time and there was an after time that I developed the consciousness of why these things are happening. So the before picture made it me feel like subconsciously made me feel like it was my fault. Everything screams at you like blackness is ugly. You're supposed to have blonde hair. You know, why am I going to grow up and not have blonde hair? Everybody on TV does, you know, why is my nose so big? Why are my lips so big? Why is my butt so big? And then, okay, well, that actress wants my butt, but she doesn't want my waistline. You know, like, mm. why are the parts of me being reappropriated? Why all of a sudden are girls having braids like mine, like my African braids? Like, why are they taking all of these things and then not feeling like it's a big deal? Any other culture that, you know, you play dress up with their culture it's a big deal but not me you know so that's the closest that I can relate to it is before I was conscious of these things I lived in a different world I was I took things at face value if the government said you know this I believed it when I talked about America I would say we you know because I believed that I was part of America I believed I was American and then the concept blows up And you start thinking, what is America? And that's what's at war right now. We can't have Trump and have America. We've got to pick one. Mm. We have got to pick one at at some point. And then, I mean, it's to the point, the way it is now, somebody brought up yesterday, they wouldn't be surprised if people started seceding from the union. But I would like them to not do that because I live in Texas. (laughs) Oh my gosh. <laughs> a choice of my own. 
So I would want to flee to California before anybody does that. So I would like the heads up. But to talk to switch over to medical racism. <laughs> and the reason for Cali is they have a fantastic um, healthcare system, like compared to everybody else. I know it's not the best, but compared to here where I have nothing, it's like, <laughs> and compared to Maryland, which is okay, Cali's is really good. Yeah, we do have um, a good constitution here. I, I'm I'm very proud yes, of the constitution that we have on the state. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a warm and fuzzy. Um, I do want to just um, get back really quickly to the police force because I know okay. that there's going to be a lot of people who will misunderstand what you were saying, and I just want to clarify um, because I, I can already see the hate mail. <laughs> and, um, by the way, there is any hate mail. It will. It's fine. I, if there's anything that is, I, I used to be so scared to say anything anywhere because I was like, someone's going to yeah. misunderstand me. Yeah. It was a very good way to be silenced was the fear of being misunderstood or being attacked. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, that's a thing that happened. You know, it's, it's easier, um, which I'm sure you're, you're definitely very well. Oh, yeah. that. that happened um, to me too. What yeah. happened to me was that first I turned 40 mm-hmm. and a flip went off in my head somewhere around that time where I was just like, okay, my new word is no. Just no. Oh, you want to no. You have an opinion about no. <laughs> you don't like, okay, no. You know, H.L. Mencken wrote this, this short comment as a reply to somebody who sent him hate mail. He said, I am reading your letter in the smallest room. It, I have your letter in front of me in the smallest room of my house. And very soon it will be behind me. Mm. I'm going to wipe my ass with your criticism. Fuck you. That's one of my favorite quotes of all time. But um, getting back to what you were saying, you, you believe that people are going to misunderstand the message? I just wanted to clarify a little bit because I, from what I understand, and um, <laughs> I don't want to rephrase or put words in your mouth. I just want to make no sure problem. that I'm, I'm clear. Is that yeah. you're not talking about like, we don't have anything that can help if something goes wrong, if something illegal goes wrong. You're talking about creating something that will not systematically police one group of people exactly. that will be held accountable. You're not saying we just don't right. have law. We just have anarchy. You're not calling for right. anarchy. You're calling right. for... I'm not saying anarchy. I'm not saying don't have um, departments that, you know, tasked with the responsibility of protecting us. I'm saying they need to be restructured and the current structure is one that we can't just rebuild on. Mm. There you go. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that was what I, I had thought you were clear? saying. Okay. And I just wanted to be like, as I know that, that what's going to happen is people are going to hear that one part. And they're going to be like, she's calling for anarchy. And I was like, no. Right. So on blast, everyone, if you have not listened to the full interview, no, no, we will be just blocking if you're talking and you have not listened to the whole thing. There you go. <laughs> I'm sick. I don't have the full energy to engage. <laughs> right. But then if we want to circle to medical racism, I have some of the, the top things stored in my head because it's just so. Okay. But only if you promise funny. to come back and do a full, like oh, massive yes, long, like we talk, well, you talk, I listen and occasionally say something. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, but not favorite topics, if that makes ah. sense. That makes so, perfect sense. Yeah, and just real quick, John favorites. Oliver did a really good episode on this. If someone just needs like a quick like refresher, if you're like Who hearing did? medical racism for the first time, John Oliver did a John Oliver. Oh, yeah. John Oliver! I love John Oliver. I do too. I like, and like he, John Oliver. Who, what podcast is that? No, be John Oliver. No. 
They, John Oliver, did a whole a whole episode on uh, medical racism. So if this is the first time you're oh. hearing that term, um, you obviously don't listen to the podcast, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, head over to John Oliver, and I, that again will be at the very top of our show notes as well. So that's super important. Yeah, I've done several. Excuse me. I've done several threads on medical racism. I have headed up a chat about medical trauma due to racism. And here's some of the stuff that I know that is backed by research, not theoretically, not philosophically, not maybe. Due to racism, not race, racism, our babies are born smaller. Due to race, we um, receive less medical care for pain and are not believed. I experienced this personally. If I want help with pain at a hospital, I have to tell them I do not, under any circumstances, want any type of pain medicine. That is the only way they'll give it to me. That is a tip for all of you out there in chronic pain who are having this problem. If you want them to give you pain medicine, tell them you're not leaving the hospital until they figure out what's wrong with me and don't try to make me, don't try to give me pills and make me leave. Because that's what they're going to do. They're going to give you pills and make you leave. So if you have trouble getting your medicine in an emergency, do that. Um, If I want them to figure out what's wrong with me, I tell them I'm in pain and they should give me medicine. I have to play psychological games that took me, by the way, over a decade to figure out how to play in order to get them to treat me. And I have advocates. I'm a privileged person in this department. Half my family is in medicine. One of my uncles is a chief of staff at the hospital, like uh, at one of the hospitals, a major hospital, like an hour away from my house when I lived in Maryland. That's what I'm going through when I have medical professionals as advocates. My mother's a nurse. Um, But to go back to the um, hard evidence, we experience lower birth rates. We experience more miscarriages because people don't believe us. Um, The stress of racism is affecting the biology of our children. Um, The stress of racism is affecting all of our other health issues. Um, um, And we we get um, treated unequally in cancer. Like for me, I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. But look at me, I don't look pale, do I? (laughs) So people see me. And they do not believe that I'm sick and they do not believe that I have cancer. And it is a, it's right now I'm asymptomatic. So it's not like, you know, in any time in the next like 20 years, I'm going to die of this particular disease. But at the same time, it's like, this is a disease that I will frequently have to go on and off chemo for, for the next couple of decades. It can, my situation can turn from, um, very quickly from an okay day to me almost dying. Like if my temperature goes above 105 degrees, I have to go to the hospital, you know, but if they don't believe me, I could die. You know, imagine that we have these, we are invisibly disabled people. We have these problems where they don't want to listen to us already. And then you add on the fact that you're black. It's just, it's, it's miserable. Um, so those are just a few of the things that um, I think I mentioned pain. I mentioned pregnancy. I mentioned them disbelieving us. So those are the top three things um, because they found from studies, doctors feel that black people in general are in less pain, that we don't feel it the same way. Um, they have presuppositions about us when they come in, when we come into the emergency department, even if they've had training to do otherwise, 
even though sometimes they are also black people. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the race, medical racism area. I wanted to um, also talk about uh, as a child of the 80s and 90s, where there's this big idea of being colorblind. Yeah. I don't see color. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I was hoping you could uh, expand on the um, the good intention, stupid as fuckness of that all. Yeah, it, it's a fucked concept from the door because colorblind, that's kind of ableist. Like, in the first place, just the expression colorblind on its face is ableist. I, mean, I so, hadn't even thought about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you get past that. And um, there's the problem that The intention of colorblindness was good. It was that it was saying that, okay, I don't see this thing about you that I think is bad. But Mm -hmm. compare it to like why people won't just say the word disabled. The supposition there is that this having a disability and being disabled is bad. So therefore, I have to say that you are a person with a disability. So I see your humanity first. Why am I less human if you talk about my disability? That doesn't make any damn sense. And so it's the same thing with colorblindness. You saying that you're colorblind means you're not seeing a very special part of me. You know, and people will say, oh, well, why would you want people to see your blackness? You know, I thought black was just the color. On one level, my blackness does not make me different from you, but because people believed that it made me different from you, that pushed me together with the rest of people like me, and that formed a culture. And we also had that culture before we came here and have it stripped of, stripped of us. So our ability to, to reculturize ourselves around our skin color, in, is our various skin colors, instead of our cultural groups, which we have lost, is oppressive. You're telling us that we, that you are refusing to see part of our identity that you forced us to have. Mm. That's what's wrong with colorblindness. Our color is not a negative that needs to be transcended. Mm. It's just a biological fact. I can see you, you can see me. What we need to do away with is whiteness. There really isn't a thing that is whiteness. And white people need to be freed from the idea of whiteness. You, you should be allowed to exist in your Germanness or your Italianness or your Spanishness, or if you want to, your Americanness or your Montananess or your regionalness rather than your whiteness, because instantly when you're white, it's diametrically opposing you to another part of the population. That's what the word is for. Whew. That's the, what the word is for. So we don't need to be colorblind for black people. We need to eliminate whiteness. That Not is, white people. Yeah. The concept of whiteness. That is a fascinating, I, I've never thought of it from that, that perspective before. It's That's not mine. really interesting. There's a reporter who said it on CNN. I retweeted it yesterday. He starts out talking about how it's really easy to blame all of the stuff that's happening and lay it in, you know, it was after El Paso that it's really easy to lay this on the, at the feet of Trump and say it's all his fault. But a lot of these problems were here before he got here. He's just the catalyst. He's just the lightning rod. 
all of this stuff was here before and y'all refused to see it. You know, some people said we don't have racism anymore because we have a black president. One doesn't have anything to do with the other at all. And I didn't vote for him because he's black. I voted for him because he eliminated the pre-existing health conditions and I could all of a sudden enjoy my wealth as an entrepreneur until I got cancer, you know? So, I mean, I don't think they really understand, but he, he went on to say, you know, that this isn't just about Donald Trump. Trump. It's about us as a country. It's about us as a culture. And he ended off saying this thing that I've heard before that he, he listed some things that if we finally did these things, then it could liberate, liberate you guys from your whiteness. And he used the word liberate. And I think that that's the way that it needs to be thought of. I think that the concept of whiteness is enslaving white people and they don't, you, you can't see it, but once think about it for the rest of the day, after you listen to this, just think about, all the ways in which your life is measured or different or valued or sometimes devalued or a joke or a testament because of your whiteness. Like, take your whiteness away and who are you? That's who you should be. That's who you should be referred to as. You know, it's this other concept that's wrapped around you. It's imprisoning and we can't even see it. It's like suddenly becoming aware of the air we're breathing. You know, I just, I, I want to say just one thing about the color thing, because I was yeah. raised in that, that I was very, that was, that was in our curriculum of you are colorblind. And yeah. I just want to say really quickly how that fucked me up. And, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. And I hope this is okay to say this. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, yeah. Um, so how it really screwed me up was it made it harder for me because I felt like, oh, but I'm just like you and I'm not, mm-hmm. I didn't experience the trauma you experienced. I mm-hmm. didn't see the police as bad uh, or as someone who could hurt me until right. I got older and it was a sexual issue that I was afraid of the police. Right. Um, oh, but I didn't yeah. understand it from, uh, yeah, it was, uh, um, I had police officers be very inappropriate with me. Um, um, but that wasn't awesome. the same thing. That's not the same trauma. Right. That's, and so when, when my, when my wife, um, at the time told me that she was scared of the police officers, I, it, it blew my worldview in such right. a way that I couldn't hear her. And because mm-hmm. I thought colorblind, we've all had the same experience. Right. And that is not fucking true. I didn't have right. experience. I didn't we have, have the same basis of experiences, but yeah. we have a different layer that goes on top than the layer that goes on top for you. Yes. And I think that this idea of colorblind creates this um, false sense of, I already understand you and I don't, yes. I need to listen to you. Right. Right. It, it, it sets you up. And, you know, it sets you up to feel like you know more than you do. It Mm. sets you up to um, feel like you empathize more than you do. And it ends up trapping you in this idea that these things don't matter. If they don't matter, I can ignore them. And if you're ignoring them, how do you see when the other person is in trouble because of the thing that you're ignoring? You can't see it because you're being blind to their color. And then it's also like, how do you see the value in that person? Who's like, you know, they're 
culture invented jazz, like, or, you know, was integral to hip hop. How do you see that if you don't see color, you know? And make rock and roll. And right. (laughs) This goes on scientific achievements that are not being properly credited. I Um, mean, from the green light to the, to shoes. Everybody wears shoes. Nobody knows it was black people who made it so that shoes could be mass produced. Zero. Um, we, we can't, we, I, I do a separate podcast, um, for kids and, um, just black history month is my favorite. Cause I get to go, Oh yeah, we're going to like really right. delve into all the shit the that I should have learned too, because we teach it as this one separate thing over here mm-hmm. instead of actually teaching all history because exactly. we have black history month, like we weren't, then we have women history month. Then we have like Latin heritage month. Then we have, you know, Asian, you like so we everything we're teaching just a little corner of just these things when we could be integrating all that history until everything hasn't really happened because think about it if we knew the history of police departments will be in this situation right now right if we knew the history of um how black bodies were used for um medical experience experience of gynecology came to be because of experimentation on black women with no anesthesia seriously look this up people like you will vomit if you look like it is if you look at yeah the the quote-unquote father of gynecology there aren't words yeah and there's there is a statue of him outside of is it harvard um but yeah there's a statue of of him outside the medical yeah right outside the medical building like we're supposed to be happy Mm -hmm. and think of how much you hate everything that has to do with the, 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 gynecology, the gynecology visits that you have to have. I think how much worse it must have been for the women that, you know, had to be picked apart to learn all of those things. We could have, a, we could have had a totally different experience mm-hmm. if it wasn't created in cruelty, you know? So here's the question. How do we get... Um, I was, I was just thinking like from like a black storyteller perspective, like I really, like I could be wrong. I could be in a very, you know, uh, warm and fuzzy place in the world, but I really believe that one of our best ways of moving forward is through storytelling. How do we get, okay. Yeah. Like how do we get more, more voices out? How do we get more, more shows, more like TV shows change the world. Advertising changes the world. How do we get more black people, more black voices. How do we amplify is I think my question. Sorry, that took the long way around. (laughs) That's okay. I I think the key is that we have to demand it. We have to have things like, um, you know, what do they have? They call them inclusion writers. Everybody who's, you know, we have to get demand that white Hollywood start to include inclusion writers in their contract and not just for black people. We need to see a lot more disabled people on TV. And I mean a lot more. They can't even get chronic pain right. Not even something as fucking simple as chronic pain. They can't get that shit right. Everybody's been in pain before. You know, you would think they would say, oh, this must be what it's like to be in unending pain. No, they're all drug addicts. It's, it's so stupid. It's so fucking idiotic that it just burns me up inside excuse I, I hate using i hate when i slip and use those terms they're ableist but it is fucking ridiculous and i hate it yeah you and i are definitely gonna have to do a panel <laughs> on racism and media and uh, yeah. and uh, advertising as well i think advertising has become like they cannot stop i don't know why they can't stop they really can't stop people keep giving them money 
That's why well, they can't stop. People keep giving them money. And they we don't have, have people the on their board. Yeah, they don't have the exactly. right people on their boards. Like, how did that get through? I, I In the advertising world, I, that was my job. Right. And like, how the fuck has no one decided that we need better hiring practices, that we need to really right? look at? Yeah, that goes through. that goes through so many test groups. That goes through so many people saying yes. <laughs> right. But then the, the whole thing with the pri- hiring process is people assume that hiring was fair in the first place. That it's a meritocracy mm. and it never has been. That's what affirmative action was invented to correct. It was invented to correct equal opportunity and access to employment. There's no law anywhere that says if you have a black person, a white person for a job, hire a black person. That's fiction. It's complete fiction. And if you go and just read the few simple sen- sentences that tell you that, that John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy wrote, that tell you what affirmative action is, it will become completely clear in your head that it's just the desire to have a representative, representative population in government and then private practices taking that idea once it became, you know, uh, law in the 80s to extending that idea to the rest of employment. That's all it is. Give more people a chance for the job, not necessarily hire them. And then also the idea, excuse me, the other problem with meritocracy is that it assumes that women and black people and Latino people and, and, and uh, first station people and um lesbians and gay people and trans people they are making the assumption and non-binary people that we're not good enough on its face they're making that assumption that we don't have merit but in fact don't we we have to be better at our jobs just to get them i think that the democratic lineup pretty much proved that shit you know (laughs) we could have had julian castro and elizabeth warren we could have had you know kamala and joe but no now we got to have possibly one predator against possibly another predator. You know, it's just, well, one definite predator against another possible predator. It's yeah, just, at this point, I, I can't bring myself to say anything about Joe because I, I, I know what I the guess. other option is and I'm go Joe. Yeah, I can't. Joe 2020. I told, I told yep. them, unless Satan himself appears in flesh form in my room and says, vote for Joe Biden, I'm voting for Joe Biden. Like I don't know. I mean, Satan might actually be a, a plus side for me at this point. I'll take, I'll take him. <laughs> Mock would be doing a better job than what we have right now. Are you kidding me? Oh, and I would definitely be doing a less dangerous job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you. I mean, like, oh gosh. Right now, it's just for me. It's just like, can we just, as long as we get rid of the joke, this joker? I don't have. I don't care how we do it. I don't care. Like if a machine came here and said, I will take 10 years off your life, but he's immediately not president. I'd say, go for it. I go well, for I want it, him man. gone. <laughs> and I, I, I want him gone. Anyway, one day. <laughs> we still have a system that said this was okay. And we right. still have the people here and we still have, we have Kavanaugh in power. We have McConnell right. in power. We have Pence who somehow managed to grasp power and yes, but you know what's interesting about the whole thing? It feels so defeatist, and it feels like, wow, even if we elect somebody else, he's not going to get out of the White House and all those other things. But if that's the case, why have an election at all? It seems like there's a piece of this that we have to consent to. Mm. 
Otherwise, I mean, I'm sorry. I was not saying right now. I was not saying don't vote. Saying? I'm. I am not saying don't oh, no, vote. No, I'm no, not I saying, that saying that it's. So that. no worries. Like what I was trying to say was just that um, that we do need this election. We do need to focus on it, but we also need to acknowledge how much this country needs to look at itself, ask questions, we and get have, past its discomfort. We have to become civically minded again as mm. a nation. Period. Well, what I was saying wasn't about what you were saying. It was I was kind of changing okay. the topic a little bit. I was saying that all of this way that they're oppressing us, you would think by now they would have just declared martial law and taken over the country. Why haven't they? What did they, you know, why haven't they done that? The kind of thought last night be, he did. <laughs> well, last night he did, but... Last night he did, but he did it for, you know, he had curfews for cities, but it's not like the election is canceled. You know what I mean? It's not like he's King Trump yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, cause he could have, he could have done that by now. It's obvious that, you know, the military is not going to wake up one day and not do what it says. He's the, apparently he's got them indoctrinated that he's the commander in chief and they should do whatever he says. So it, it's almost like, it's almost like they're. It's almost like he's. Tr- they're trying to trick us into letting the election get stolen again. Mm. You know what I mean? By getting us defeated enough and putting enough, so many obstacles in our way that we just say, "Fuck it." He's going to be king anyway. Let's just, you know, become complacent because there's nothing we can do about it. I think, and I know a lot of people have given up hope about this, but I think we fight until the very last. Drop because if we let him win, whatever crazy thing that he's trying to do, anything we're dead anyway. And that's what this people in this uprising are saying. Everything has been taken away from us, and this is where the COVID thing comes in. So you wonder why people would protest during a a, a pandemic like this when their population is most likely to die because they feel like if they were if they're going to die, they're going to die anyway. These are the essential workers that were already out there. These are the people who are nurses. These are the people who are doctors. These are the people who are bringing your fast food. You know, they already think that they're already infected probably. And they're going to be out with other people who are already infected probably. That's what it is. And so I if think I understand, that, go ahead. Uh, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that, that the black community is at a place where it is, we were already going to die. Our death needs to mean something. Our voices need yes, to mean something. That's how we feel at the moment. We feel that if this thing ravages our community, and it is currently ravaging our community, if it's going to get us, those of us who is going to get, we might as well go out, you know, winging. Now, those of us who are homebound and those of us who, you know, need to, who's, who have compromised immune system because we have cancer and things like that, our relatives are very careful with us and they do their best to protect us. I'm talking about the people who went out and protested. That's why you're seeing so many people out there. I also think that they are going to get blamed for this next um, um, rise in the COVID deaths that was probably already going to happen because they were starting to force us to open the country. And I would like to rail about, uh, against that as soon as is, is, is possible. 
because they're the same people who would have had to go out anyway. They would have had to go back out to work anyway. If they were going to get infected, they were going to get infected anyway. So all they did was speed up the timeline. Mm, that's they're gonna, that's you know, an incredible if they're point. If they were going to get sick, they were going to get sick. And because they've had everything taken away from them. You know, these are people who, a lot of the people, first you, you have to be locked in your house. Then you lose your job. Then you lose your health insurance. You find out that Cobra's a fucking joke. You know, and then you're like, okay, like it's like this Trevor Noah said in that in, in his pre- presentation, but they haven't been pushed far enough because they we believe we have this contract with society and we don't want to dishonor this contract, so we don't just start looting immediately that we feel like we've lost everything. We think it's the American way. We're going to work hard. We're going to just, you know what? Grand can just move in with us. We'll move uncle in and everything. We're just going to move everybody together and we'll try to survive as a group, you know, and we're of us planning that. Imagine how many times in a row you see your people dying. And then the first two times, the entire country is seeing people dying. The entire country is seeing this Amy Cooper lady and seeing how our lives are put in jeopardy. You know, you think that you don't want to exaggerate and say daily, but for some of it, it is daily, you know, and you feel a type of way like they have this much information and they still aren't seeing what we're saying. And then the nine minute video comes out, which I still haven't seen because I have seen it live. Mm. And a lot of people like me, whether we are, we come from rich neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods, we've seen it live and we do not want to see it on our timeline. If you're going to post those videos, you have to put some kind of warnings on them. You have to make sure that it's all the way down in space so that, you know, it doesn't, you know, if there's a way to set it not to autoplay, do that. I've had to constantly, every time this kind of thing happens, send out instructions to people on social media. Here's how to make your feed not autoplay. So you're not going to be inundated all day with this image of a person that looks like you dying, you know? And I started having that policy with my mobile devices ever since there was this time that I saw this man, this video of this man get attacked by police that looks exactly like my uncle. I actually thought it was him, but he died. So it just fucked me up for like two days. So it's just, you know, we're, we can't be looking at people who look like us getting fucked up in, in, in social media. That's where we come to escape this stuff. So white people, I know you're trying to spread awareness. Tweet the article that has the video in it. Mm. And then people want to see the video and go see it, you know? DM the video to people that you think won't watch it unless they see it, it you know, unless it starts to autoplay, you know? Mm-hmm. So just, that's just another note that I wanted to add that I feel is really important for the mental health of Black people because there isn't a treatment for the effects of racism. There's no standards treatment. There's nothing that we can do when we go to therapy. Like, I remember, you know, I've suffered some sexual abuse. That's some what happened in my childhood. And there's that book, The Courage to Heal, where even mm. if you don't want to go out and get therapy traditionally because you don't believe in that, which is okay, that's some people's choice, 
even if you don't believe in getting medication for your depression, there are other tools that you can use to kind of heal yourself from that. There's no heal yourself from racism texts, really. You know, there's nothing for what one doctor calls post-traumatic slavery system. There's nothing for that. I mean, she calls it post-traumatic slavery disorder. There's nothing for that. So not only are we constantly getting traumatized and suffering from the direct effects of racism on top of our other mental health issues, you know, I have anxiety and depression. And then to see that trauma just out of nowhere, it's a lot. Do you have trouble finding Black therapists? Um, I don't have trouble finding them. I have trouble finding the right one. Mm. Because, you know, there's this belief that, you know, Black people are monoliths. So, like, if I can find a couple of Black therapists, I'm okay. But there's, contrary to popular belief, especially the people over 50 in Black America can be very conservative. You know, um, they're church-going people. They don't approve of homosexuality. They don't approve of trans. They don't understand what transgender is. They don't know what a non-binary person is. They, um, they don't respect the labels of bisexuality. They um, think that we're supposed to be pulling ourselves up by our, by our bootstraps. You know, they don't have the same consciousness and understanding that we can't have. And they, to be fair, they came up in a different time. You know, it's one thing when you can go to Harvard for what is today 8000 excuse me, $8,600 a year. And, you, you know, that's a different world than one where it's, what, $100,000 now just for tuition? So that's a, that was a completely different world where college was, you know, accessible and college loans were accessible and this respectable American dream life that they went through was accessible. And for us, it's not. And so if you get a therapist who believes in that, it's not a good fit for me. Mm. And then I also come from Nigerian culture. So a lot of the things that are, that have created the situation that induced my trauma and that resulted in me being abused and that, trigger my PTSD and that, you know, combine to give me anxiety and depression, they're not problems that every Black American has. You know, I have that child of immigrants things to deal with, and then I have the child of African (laughs) immigrants to deal with, and then I have the special thing about how people think Nigerians are all criminals, and it's just a lot, you know. And, you know, being the eldest daughter who is not, you know, I'm the oldest one of my grandparents' children, which is a big deal. I'm going to be the next matriarch. I have not remarried. I don't intend to. That brings a lot of issues. I don't have my own children. I call my sister's sets of twins my children. Um, So I can't just get a black therapist is what I'm trying to Mm. say. It's hard. I'm sorry. That was that was very clumsy of me on how I was, I was no, phrasing that. My apologies. A great question. People never ask us stuff like that. And it's so great that you even thought to ask. So no. 
I was just thinking, like, I couldn't possibly understand post-traumatic slaves, so how would I possibly be a decent therapist for you? And then I was thinking, is there enough Black therapists that you would be able to find the proper therapist who could begin to understand what you're dealing with? So, sorry, that was clumsily done. (laughs) Who specializes in this, who's even given it a name. That's Hmm. how I found out about it. I ran into her, her, some other video. She was the one who I learned stuff about the gynecology, the father of gynecology from. I watched one of her videos on YouTube. So mm-hmm. I go back and see that she's on Twitter. And the first, twi- the first video on her Twitter, Twitter feed is about post-traumatic slave disorder or post-traumatic slavery disorder. So that's how I found out about it. Imagine that, you know. So how in the hell are white people going to find out about that? How is my black therapist? going to even think to try to treat me for my racism when they are suffering from the same thing, you know? So, so I'm getting to the, the very end of my pain threshold right now. And I, yeah, I want to I'm, just, yeah, I think we're both whimpering. We're both kind of looking at each other with, and we're not posting this video. So I'm sorry, there's no visuals here, That's but if fine. you can just imagine two people staring at each other, big wet wide eyes going, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to scream. I'm not okay. going to scream. It's, what's going on right now? We're both whimpering. Um, but I just wanted to end up on an idea and I want to know how we make it happen. I love okay. the idea that the 13th, would be mm-hmm. a day to amplify Black voices, to amplify um, mm-hmm. spending towards Black artists, Black writers, Black... Yeah. Um, uh, and um, I love the idea of, like, the 13th is a day that that business owners sit down, listen to their Black staff, that, you mm-hmm. know, and... You know, and For Black and just How do we make this happen? Yeah. How do we make that... That days like this aren't about silencing anyone's mm-hmm. voice. That the days like this are about putting money in people's pockets and amplifying their voice and what they need from society. How do we make this go? You know way more about social media than I do. Well, you know, I learned on the road. I learned this from, you know, the bring back our girls hashtag. And, you know, mm. you start with this little thing and you don't think it's going to it's going to happen. It had been a month since anybody had heard news about those girls. People like to say that that whole thing failed. But because we went down and demonstrated in front of the Nigerian embassy, we got the president of the eighth most populous country in the world to cave into our demands. And he also lost that subsequent election because he had to surrender to us. And he also got aid from um, President Obama that helped them find out where they were holding the children when they would kidnap them. So as a result of that chain of events, no, not all of the 360 girls have been rescued or found their way back home, but hundreds. Right now, probably thousands of other kids that Boko Haram kidnapped have been recovered, but that's not as great of a headline. You know what I mean? So if something that big can happen from a hashtag, I think that's where we start. We have this power of social media. We can make small, we can start small with a small event, on one 13th day, we could do it the 13th of this June, you know? I saw Juneteenth was people. trending. Yeah, yeah. I was even thinking maybe it should be Juneteenth in June and then every other month be on the 13th. And have that be the, the celebration day and then convert what we do there when, into a movement. Because once you get people interested in events, once you get people interested in something, we're going to do this one time, and they see how wonderful and fulfilling it is, then we can get it to become a regular thing. I think, you know, from my days in marketing, that that 
the hurdle is getting people to accept it the first time and realize they love it. Once they know that they love something, they will sell it to themselves. You won't have to. Excellent. Well, we are going to sign off. Um, and this is uh, marching orders for uh, I am near the Silicon Valley. So I'm hoping some of the tech people will hear what we're talking about and help push this idea of the 13th being a time. Uh, Facebook really needs to start listening to their employees as they are quitting and, and screaming. Real. Right. Um, yeah. We, by the way, we are looking at moving our Facebook group off of Facebook. So, um, if you can help with that, please let us know because we are we are trying to right. cut ties with Facebook as we are speaking. Um, but this is one of the most important things we've done um, as a podcast. I cannot thank you enough for coming on. You are you're pleasure. wonderful. I'm hoping you come back. I hope we can uh, oh, eventually get you your own podcast because we have yeah. lots and lots to learn from I you. I'm down for that. I'm ready to to partner up and see how you guys do things and fit myself into your network. I would love our, that. Our network is baby right now. So we are very okay. interested in your viewpoints and how we make it better and how we make it okay. inclusive and and a good thing. We need this to be a good, good inclusive thing. Um, Absolutely. So, Everyone, um, as you were listening to what we talked about, um, as much as I possibly can today, and it's going to be a brutal day, I'll be um, searching for all these links, and I'll be posting at the top of show notes. So head over to invisiblenetbroken.com, go over to Explicitly Sick, and it'll be right there at the very top as much as I can do. Um, And thank you. Uh, This is unprecedented times. So being kind, being gentle, and being a badass has never been more important. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Bye.